So Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were closed. The rain from heavens were restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Moving on to verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, and the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all with you, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth, he went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of men. For the intention of the man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And going forward to verse 20. And Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Jephthah took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thanks, Joel. I hope you can see this. Uh, I'm very thankful to be with you again today as we continue our study of the Noah account. And it really will help if you keep your Bibles open in Genesis so we can refer to it together. And when we finished up in Genesis 7 last week, a world of human violence had been subdued. God flooded the world and the water was at its highest point. And a righteous and blameless Noah was floating in an ark on the face of the waters with his family, his 
only eight people remaining uh, with a pulse, with the skin warm to the touch, and surrounded by dead silence. A sober uh, reminder of a world uh, deemed too evil to live, and the hopes of mankind uh, carried upon just a wooden ark. And in today's section, the spotlight is on Noah. Uh, but not simply because there's nowhere else for it to go. No, from the outset, Noah has been painted as the hope of all humanity. And we first encountered Noah via his father back in chapter five. So when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Noah is set up within the narrative as one who will bring about relief from a fallen world, or more literally, rest. Noah's name is a play on the Hebrew word for rest. But rest from what? Well, you might have noticed that Lamech refers directly to the curses of chapter 3, back to uh, the fall that leads to a world where life is painful. So as a consequence of Adam's disobedience, it's a world where producing food is painful, this essential activity of mankind. And as a consequence of Eve's disobedience, it's a world where childbearing is painful. Uh, the fall means a world where fruitful multiplication is painful. And this is life outside the garden. It's all you and I have ever known. And Lamech, Noah's father, he's over it. You know, he's sick of life in a broken world and he yearns for rest from a world that fights against him, that restrains him. And he pictures uh, his newborn son. He holds him and seems to think to himself, you, Noah, you are the offspring who is finally going to bring us rest from the curses of the fall. And so as early as chapter five, uh, the author Moses has set us up to hope in Noah like Lamech does. We, like Lamech, hope that somehow, somehow that one day uh, there will be rest, the relief of life without the enmity, without the curses of the fall. And today's passage is where we'll find the answer. What will bring rest to a world so full of pain, so restless? Um, and here's what I think uh, we'll see today. A new creation with the same old problem, but a new hope. So firstly, a new creation. <clears throat> the first verse of chapter eight uh, signals the turnaround in our narrative, if you'll look with me. It says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And you might find that language of remembering uh, just a little bit odd, you know, as if God was eating his breakfast and then he felt his phone buzz and it was a Google calendar notification that read, save Noah. And he's like, yeah, I guess I should. You no, know, when, when Moses tells us of God remembering, it's when God faithfully steps in, in accordance to his promise. It's when he faithfully gives life in the clutches of death. And in this instance, it's in unflooding the earth. It's like God's pulling the plug in his cosmic bathtub to save his people. 
And while we might be tempted to think of this act simply as like drying out this now soggy planet, what Moses wants to see, wants us to see that there's something much bigger going on. God is forming a new creation. He's forming a new world. How do we see that? In verse one of chapter eight, there's a wind blowing over the earth. And that Hebrew word for wind is the same as the word for spirit, ruach, which you might remember from the second verse of the entire Bible. The spirit or wind of God over the face of the waters on the first day of creation. Moses is signaling something new beginning. And in chapter 8, verse 2, the heavens and the sea, they're, they're separated once more. In verse 13 of chapter 8, there's dry land separated from the seas. We're seeing the separations put back. We're back to a formed planet ready to be filled. So what, what's Moses saying here? Well, the flood isn't merely a car wash for the planet, restoring it to what it was. We're witnessing a recreation. And in verse 15 of chapter 8, uh, presumably with a severe case of sea legs, the inhabitants of the ark disembark, man and beast alike. And if you follow the pattern, new planet filled with animals, well, I think we're expecting a new mankind, like in Genesis 1. This creation features a new world and a new Adam. Noah is portrayed by Moses as a new Adam-type figure. Noah is the head of this new humanity, something of a king with dominion, like Adam was. But interestingly, his first policy as king uh, is to make a sacrifice, like a priest. So if you look with me in verse 20 of chapter 8, it reads, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. It's a huge moment in this Noah narrative. And you may recall that Adam was described like a priest in the garden back in chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam's role was one of serving the Lord and keeping the land free from what was unclean. And Noah is, is something of a king priest, just like Adam. And just like Adam, Noah is commissioned to fill his new creation. So read with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is committed to this fruitful multiplication through Noah, just as he was with Adam. In fact, he's so committed to this fruitful multiplication, he's going to establish a covenant to make a promise as security for it. And so at this point in the narrative, we have something that looks very much like a Genesis 2 world. A new world, a new Adam, and a new covenant. You can read from verse 11 of chapter 9. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what's God's covenant here? Well, God promises to all of creation that he'll never flood it again. And it's hard to believe some days in London, isn't it? Uh, 
perhaps even on a day like today, I cycled home in pouring rain the other day, and the rain was so heavy, I was fairly convinced that all of East London was about to go under. And when I arrived home, I was, I was soaked to the bone, and I took out my phone, and I'd just received a text from Brian Wong saying, such heavy rain today, it made me think of the flood. But thank the Lord for his faithfulness. This covenant, this promise means that God is committed to producing a world filled with his image bearers. He won't drown the earth once more. And God gives the world a sign of this promise, a visual reminder of his guarantee. So in chapter 9, verse 12, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I'm not sure we see rainbows that often in London with the towering skylines, but God has set the rainbow after the rains have passed as a sign of this guarantee. I mean, what do you think of when you see the rainbow in 2020? I mean, we most commonly see it flown on flags, don't we? Included in the NHS logo in support of sexual diversity in its workforce. Well, should the rainbow remind us of pride? You know, should it call something to mind, something of sexual liberties? Well, ironically, yes. Inasmuch as it reminds us of the Noah account, where our world was so filled with human pride, uh, and it's, it's godlessness, so filled with sexual license. You remember chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and the sons of God taking uh, men as, uh, women as they chose. It's so filled with sexual license that the creator God destroyed it. He filled the lungs that breathed violence against him with water. How ironic that that uh, symbol given to us as a guarantee of the creator God's mercy on sinful mankind has been turned into a celebration of human rebellion against the creator. It's evidence of a sinful world today, isn't it? Which brings us to our next point. A new creation with the same old problem. Some read the Noah account as though God is surprised by the presence of sin in the flood's wake. Like the flood was God's last-ditch effort at eradicating evil forever, and somehow he's been thwarted. But a careful assessment of the text shows us, well, that's just not the case. In verse 21 of chapter 8, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is God speaking after the flood. It sounds like what he said before, doesn't it? Which means that God did not flood the earth in an attempt to eradicate sin at its roots. I mean, how, how could it when the problem's in the heart? No, God brought the flood to execute judgment against the world. God's not surprised by the sinfulness of mankind after the flood, but we as readers might be, perhaps chiefly when we see where righteous Noah ends up at the end of chapter 9. So if you look with me at verse 20 of chapter 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Earlier, we described Noah as the new Adam. We said Moses is painting Noah as the new Adam. Well, here Noah is in a new garden, 
taking the fruit to his peril in drunkenness. He's found naked and ashamed, like Adam. He's just like Adam, through and through. And just like the first fall in Genesis, in that garden, taking the fruit, found naked and ashamed, well, the fallout takes the form of curses. As he lies naked in his tent, one of his sons, Ham, sees him. Uh, and rather than covering him like his brothers do, he shames him by telling his brothers. And Noah's first words in this entire uh, flood story are to curse the son who shames him. New Adam, new fall. And Noah all but counts himself out of being that promised offspring who will bring rest. And as Noah's account comes to a close, we have no sign of that rest that Lamech yearned for in his son, that you and I yearn for. So what hope does the text leave us with? And that brings us to our third point. And now's a good chance to tune back in if you've drifted off. A new creation with the same old problem, but a new hope. So while we don't find rest like we might have hoped in the Noah narrative, it does show us where to look. Take Noah's sacrifice, for example. Uh, It's a sacrifice welcomed by the Lord. In 21 of uh, chapter 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Moses wants us to see that Noah's sacrifice is an atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? It's a sacrifice that brings peace by bearing God's wrath, the substitute death for the death that Noah and his family deserve for their sin. And it's a sacrifice that inaugurates this new creation administered by this priest king. But if Noah is so clearly not the rest bringer by the end of his section in Genesis, then from where will this priest king come? Well, the Noah account's conclusion points us to a new offspring, a new hope. If you recall that incident in chapter 9 that left one son cursed, well, it left Shem and Japheth, who honoured their father, blessed. If you look with me in verse 26 of chapter 9, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Ham's offspring will be the servants to Japheth's and Shem's. And Japheth will dwell in Shem's tents, which means that Shem is marked out as the hope of rest in a restless world, specifically in his lineage. The promised offspring will come from Shem. So let's try and uh, draw some things together here. We started by asking where rest would come from. Uh, What does the Noah account teach us? Well, we see uh, Noah presented as this priest king whose wrath-bearing sacrifice inaugurates this new creation. And Noah's family is saved by, by trusting in Noah's righteous obedience. But the text forces us to look for someone like Noah, someone else. 
And the hope of full reversal comes through Shem's line. Which is why Luke in his gospel shows us that Shem, uh, Jesus is Shem's descendant. And you'll see this in the genealogy in chapter three of Luke's gospel. Luke identifies Jesus as the offspring in Shem's line who will finally deliver this true rest bringer. Because it's Jesus whose obedience brings us safety from judgment. It's Jesus who is this priest king forever, who offers a once for all sacrifice of atonement, you know, a substitute who dies on our behalf. And it's Jesus who brings about the new covenant with man and a new creation in which there is relief. So why all these huge categories this early on in Genesis, these categories that we see so clearly fulfilled in the New Testament, but here so compactly, densely formed? Well, I think Moses is coaching us to identify the pattern of salvation history so that we can be ready for the offspring when he comes. That we'll know where rest actually comes from and not seek for it elsewhere and that we can actually find safety and find rest in the only one who brings it. So where can we find rest? Only in Jesus who comes to our hurting, fatigued world, you know, a world of Lamex who are just so over it and yearning for rest. And he says to them, come to me, all who, are lab- uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't it amazing how we try to find rest everywhere else uh, but in Jesus? You know, we expect relief from the fall short of the new creation that Jesus will instate. But this is a, a precious era that we live in, where God has made his offspring known. Generations have creaked under the stress of this fallen world, the groaning for God to finally deliver them through his offspring. And it's you and I who have the answer. So why trust in this Jesus? Well, isn't it the most obvious thing in the entire world to do? This is God's long-promised saviour. Those who follow him, they follow him to safety. They find that long-awaited rest. Uh, We have a moment for questions and then some discussion. Uh, But first, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you that the promised uh, rest that you bring to the restless is finally found in your son, Jesus. And pray that we will be convinced that this rest can only be found in him. And Lord, we long for that new creation and that lasting relief from the effects of the fall. And so we pray that we press on following Jesus into this rest. And we pray this in the name of the offspring, Jesus. Amen.